Hello and welcome to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. Time now for another creator interview. Uh, today's guest has the word storyteller as the first word in their bio on Twitter, or X depending on if you want to be pedantic, and that is an apt description for their work in the world of comics. Currently writing one of the very best comics around, he has worked as an artist, colorist, editor, project manager, and yes, writer over a 20 plus year career. Forging his own career with a 100% creator-owned webcomic, fusing fantasy and the coming-of-age journey in Makeshift Miracle in 2001, he was soon covering many positions at Udon Entertainment on their various Street Fighter titles over the course of nine years. It was at that point he set up an image, launching Skull Kickers with Edwin Huang, a sword and sorcery fantasy title that ran for over 30 issues. While at, issue other, uh, while at Image, other creator-owned titles came along, such as Glitter Bomb and Wayward, and at IDW, he was working on several Dungeons & Dragons titles over a five-year period. It was at this point Marvel came calling, and over the next few years, he would be writing everyone from Wolverine to the Thunderbolts to the Avengers and the Champions. But clearly, this was all just the first step on a journey to writing the ultimate pulp sword and sorcery icons in the form of Red Sonja, and now the current ongoing Conan the Barbarian title recently relaunched at its new home of Titan Comics. It is our distinct pleasure today to welcome Jibzub onto the podcast. Good evening, sir. Wow, that is uh, well researched. <laughs> that is a that's a good rundown of stuff. Tell you, it's all about massaging that ego yeah, and you know I, making the critters nice and loose. <laughs> I got it. Most people, most people at, will start my career with with skull kickers, and uh, so getting that pre kind of skull kicker stuff is unusual. That someone is aware of it and and has done the homework. And uh, it definitely makes me feel older <laughs> in terms of the history. You're like, 20 years? Who's that? Oh, God, that's me. What have I been doing? Uh, yeah, so that's awesome. Uh, I, yes, I guess that's me. Uh, and I'm I'm here doing it up. And We've got I'm, the right guy. Pleasure. We've got the right We've guy. We've got the right that's guy. Right. <laughs> My research is correct. I mean, I can actually show you cool. just interestingly sitting on in the desk in front of us. We have two sort of opposite ends of your career because I actually no, I was gonna say that's skull kickers. I could literally tell from upside down. <laughs> and then it's got that those are the opposite ends. And yes. then, yeah. So Conan obviously oldest, out this week. Some of the newest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do notice in this one you're called Jim Zubkovich though. And now yes. you're Jim and now you're very much Jim Zub. Was that when yeah, did that when did that decision come in? I, so um I think we were putting out it would have been either I would have to go look again. It's either Skull Kickers issue four or issue five, and we were putting the trade paperback together, and I had um, I was doing almost all the of my own design on the book, and so I was organizing the cover, and when I put Zubkovich on the cover, it just it spaced out horribly and it looked terrible, and I I was already kind of thinking about making it a pen name anyways. Because that's what everyone has called me. Like, I do San Diego Comic Con for the very first time in, I want to say, two thousand two, and I meet a whole bunch of creators who I talked to online at that point. Scott McLeod was a big supporter of the web comic that I was doing online at the time, and he was uh, wonderful. And he had convinced me that I should go to San Diego Comic-Con, which is ridiculous. And uh, at the time I was still trying to pay down student debt and I didn't feel like I was part of an industry. I was just making my own stuff. Uh-huh. But uh, I ended up going to the show and we're out for dinner with a group of people. And there's like uh, James Kachalka is there and um, Leah Hernandez was there. Uh, and and she said, I think, I think it was her, she said to me, um, you know, what do we call you or something? And I was like, you know, Jim Zubkovich or whatever. And she goes, no, 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 you need something casual. If someone 
if we're out for dinner and everyone's talking about industry stuff and they say gym and it's in casual kind of parlance, that means Jim Lee. So uh, if you're like, I was out for dinner with Jim last night, everyone knows you mean Jim Lee because he is the gym. If this was the 80s, you would mean Jim Shooter, yeah. the editor-in-chief of Marvel. Uh -huh. But now it's Jim Lee, right? If you say Frank, you mean Frank Miller. I was out with Frank. If you say Neil, Neil Gaiman. You know, in the 80s, it would have been Neil Adams. But mm -hmm. so it's like this fascinating thing. They go, Jim is far too populated. You'll never get Jim. So don't even try. So <laughs> so what? what's your name? And I was just sort of laughing. I was like, oh, this is a lot of pressure. And so I said, um, you know, when I was in uh, uh, high school, there were like three gyms in my class. And so I was just Zub. Everyone just called me Zub. And she goes, well, no one will steal that. So Zub you are and <laughs> Zub you shall be. And within a few days at the con, it was just sort of that was everyone was wow. calling me Zub, which was super weird because in college, it was a very casual. That's what my friends called me. And now all of a sudden, all these industry people who had just met me were calling me by this very congenial kind of friendly name. Uh, and it stuck. It stuck everywhere to the point where I'm doing work at Marvel. And, you know, Tom Brevoort is talking about working on the Avengers. And he's like, okay, so Zub will do this and this will that. And you're just like, oh, right. My boss at Marvel <laughs> calls me Zub. Everyone calls me Zub. So it's just kind of, it's always been there. And so I'm looking at the cover of the Skull Kickers book. I'm laying it out and I'm just like, I don't like the way this reads. Everyone calls me Zub anyways. I'll just make it Zub. Chop it, Perfect. start it, finish it. And it, it's shorter on social media. It's easier for everyone to say. No one screws up the spelling. I mean, I, I have a last name that rhymes with son of a bitch. Let's not make that the, the you know, the the thing moving forward. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is. Uh, it's actually Ukrainian. Okay. Uh, and so it means son of the tooth, which means my ancestors were either like dentists or vampires or dental vampires. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, now it's just like tooth, I guess, if you want to put it into those terms. <laughs> It's interesting. We, we we interviewed Ram V last week, and he said that for the first five years of your comic career, you used to always be able to say to people, "Oh, I've only been doing this for five years," but now he's hitting right. nine and ten years. But well, at what point <laughs> did you stop saying, "Oh, I'm I'm new to this"? I don't know. There's a weird moment. It's when people um, when people told you that they got into comics because of something you did, or I, I did a series of tutorials on my <clears throat> live journal. <laughs> oh God, on my live <laughs> journal back in the day, which is propagated over to my website. And because I have all the deep archives from those original blog posts or whatever. And those went, whatever the equivalent of viral was before regular social media was a thing. And people told me that those articles taught them about how to pitch a comic. And now they were published. And I was like, oh, I guess that means I guess that means I've been doing this a while. I guess that means I vaguely know what I'm talking about or something. That's a really, that's a weird kind of concept. Or someone who comes to you who's clearly no longer, like they're an, an adult, like in their mid to late 20s, and they're like, I read, fill in the blank, back in high school. I read Skull Kickers in high school. I read Wayward in high school. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> God, you know, like that's, this is, now you're established or whatever. This is a kind of a weird feeling. But but still, every time I tell people what I do for a living, I can't help but I get a big smile on my face because it is. It's still magical. It's still awesome. 
you know, my mother, she will describe my job and she will say, oh, Jim is, is a published author and he uh, is a, a professor at the university. And it's like, mom, I teach, you know, like animation and drawing courses at an art college and uh, I write comic books. Like these things are, you know, very, very different. She makes it sound like I've got the tweed jacket and I've got a pipe and I'm, you know, some literati or whatever, but that's not quite the case. Yeah. <laughs> Although I guess, you know, I'm writing the original sword and sorcery hero who has a 90 year legacy of publishing and pioneered a genre. That's uh, that's not bad. Yeah, some, that's there pretty. are people who literally are, are literary scholars of Robert E. Howard and they analyze every single pastiche and in, in word written about the character. And so uh, somewhere that that vaguely makes sense to me, I guess, in the back of my head. If your mother yeah. hears this, she'd be calling you a professor of history based on that. <laughs> Something like that. It's kind of <laughs> wild. So yeah, it's good. It's good. It's been a fun ride and uh, continuing ever onward. That's for sure. Well, clearly you got your creativity from your mother, it would appear. Uh, so where, <laughs> where in the world are we finding you today then? Uh, so I'm a Canadian. So I live downtown Toronto and I grew up uh, about an hour east of the city in a little town called Oshawa, which is also was the home of Ed Brisson, uh, although I didn't know him growing up, and uh, I believe Ramon Perez as well. So there's like three kind of Marvel creators from from little little the town that motivates Canada. Oh. It's where the the General Motors plant is and all this oh, sort of stuff. I see, there's something yeah. in the water there. Then clearly. Um, <laughs> boredom <laughs> nerd boredom that's, <laughs> lots of video games lots of rpgs and uh lots of comic books that was uh, my youth that's for sure your uh those, those things are, are music music variously to our ears and uh, <laughs> so let's uh let's let's get into it a little bit mm -hmm. uh we've already we've already mentioned uh, uh conan and his 90 year legacy mm -hmm. and you know many of your titles not least dungeons and dragons deal in in the worlds of fantasy and swords and sorcery. What is it, Jim, mm -hmm. about that that genre that does it for you? Um, I yeah, I absolutely grew up. It, fantasy really changed my life in the sense that uh playing Dungeons and Dragons was so formative to me as a storyteller, as someone who wanted to entertain other people and engage with people in a very direct kind of way. It was a bridge to communicating with my brother, my older brother, who was kind of my my proto nerd for all kinds of things that I was into, whether that was comic books or gaming or video games or all that kind of stuff. And, and, but D and D was really the bridge because it was a collaborative thing that we could do together. And so that made fantasy as a genre, just inherently uh, more appealing to me in general. But, but my brother read tons of sci-fi and fantasy, but I always kind of gravitated to the fantasy books. There was something about, I think that the great vast unknowns of a fantasy world where you're going into these strange places, the world is not, there's no technology to fall back on. There's no easy answers to these kinds mm. of things. You're heading off into the unknown, the mysterious, the magical, the strange, the supernatural, and you have to survive with your own wits or your weapon or whatever may have you. And that just felt so appealing to me and so exciting to me as a concept that mysterious and, and dark kind of thing that you didn't have all the information. You couldn't just beep, boop, ask a computer and it would tell you the answers or whatever, that, that, that no matter what tools you had at your disposal, you know, there were gods and demons and monsters and the great vast unknown that was going to swallow you up. And, and that was just really exciting and cool to me, you know? And, and so in the literature that I read, um, in the games that we played, and in the comic books that I read, like, obviously, I, I was also a big superhero fan, but 
the characters even that had a magical side or a supernatural side or a fantastic fantasy kind of element, I always gravitated to them as well. You know, like Doctor Strange was, oh, so the guy gets to be a wizard and a superhero? Well, that guy's cooler <laughs> than other superheroes. Or Ghost Rider, the supernatural kind of ghosts and monsters and all that kind of thing. Or the Black Knight or Moon Knight or like street level, but with that supernatural kind of edge or or things like that. Those are the characters that always kind of grabbed my attention for that same reason. And um, it just was very, very appealing to me. And the the kind of characters who survived on their wits and on their, the, the you know, the intensity and their focus rather than it being just like they were nigh invulnerable, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, one of my favorite formative kind of superhero comic stories was um, the two, there was a New Mutant special and an X-Men annual where they went to Asgard. Yes. And it's drawn by Art Adams, uh-huh. of course, written by the great Chris Claremont. And taking those superhero characters that I already loved in the X-Men and making them fantasy versions was mm-hmm. just like pure, like just steroids. I loved it so much. I kind of, uh, not directly, but I homaged that concept when I was writing Champions and I had the characters go to Weird World and had them all turn into fantasy analogs. And that was literally me like tipping the hat that classic kind of Asgardian story where we took the heroes that you know, gave them a fantasy flair. And um, it was just fun. It's fun to explore. It's fun to kind of put those things in a place. And and happily, what's just a weird kind of thing, both um, the fantasy version of Ms. Marvel showed up as an alternate costume in the Avengers video game. And then the alternate costume for Miles just showed up in Spider-Man 2, uh, which is pretty amazing. Yes. So, yeah, it's very fun. And uh, DC recently had a had a series uh, that was a fantasy. Oh, version. the Dark Knights of Steel. The Dark Knights of Steel. Yeah, well, you had Dark yeah, Knights of Steel, and you had Philip Kennedy Johnson's The Last God, which has been renamed mm-hmm. Felspar Chronicles. Felspar Chronicles, yeah, absolutely. And even yeah. earlier than that, an Avengers miniseries called uh, Avatars mm-hmm. of the Shield, uh, which was yep. very much, I think, almost like a precursor of to the the uh the day the days of steel of dc mm-hmm. um yeah so I'm, I'm... totally i love all that kind of stuff i love the those aspects of it and and yeah just certain sorcery really hits the mark for me in so many different ways and the fact that the map's not all figured out we don't know what's in every little corner we can you know there's always some new mysterious thing to explore and there's stuff happening on different kind of levels the very ground level of survival and the kind of mystical or godlike level of of you know nightmarish creatures and the, the movements of powers beyond our understanding, all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, I, know. I can see that role-playing games have been as formative to you as they have been to me. So I Yeah, you know, it's been funny because I, I started playing first edition D&D, not the exact same, but similar kind of timing as the Stranger Things kids. So uh-huh. like co-writing the um, Stranger Things and Dungeons and Dragons yes. miniseries with Jody Hauser, where we showed how the kids got their first D&D set. A lot of that was informed by my memories of playing D&D and the particular ridiculousness and and the confidence it gave us, the confidence yeah. it gave us to be creative, to be bold and silly and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, it's really, really important to me. I did a I did a TEDx talk all about how D&D changed my life and uh, made me a more creative person than a better teacher. Uh, so that was also kind of a, it was nice to kind of, look at it from afar and kind of go look at this thing and how it's carried through it's been a through line in, in kind of everything i've done in my life i must look that up 
I was literally about to say, I know what Keith's doing once we wrap up here. <laughs> and I mean, you're talking about growing up uh, by the sound of it, the, the characters you were name checking when it comes to the big two. Were you more of a Marvel kid then than a, than a DC kid? Yeah, yeah. I definitely gravitated to the Marvel stuff. I started in Marvel with thanks to the G.I. Joe comic. So my parents were very organized about things. One of the ways they wanted to keep us from fighting when we were very young is we had to have different toys lines that we collected. We couldn't. So Joe had Star Wars toys and I had G.I. Joe toys. And so then I found out there was a G.I. Joe comic book and it was way cooler. Larry Hama's G.I. Joe comic were violent and they were freaky and there were yep. ninjas and badassery in a way that they were just firing blue and red lasers and yep. no one got hurt. This was like like nasty stuff and it was cool. And so I collected the, uh, the G.I. Joe comic and there were obviously ads in there for other comics. And I knew Spider-Man from the cartoon and from, um, I don't know if you know the magazine called The Electric Company, that was yep. like, it was this kid's magazine, and they would sometimes have Spidey super stories and things in there. So I knew Spider-Man, and I, everyone knows Spider-Man. But um, when my brother started regularly collecting uh, superhero comics, he started collecting X-Men and kind of all the related mutant stuff. And then I started collecting Amazing Spider-Man. And that I because the legacy of that character, I dropped in, I literally know the first issue that I bought with my own money. And it's not some special anniversary issue. It was like Amazing Spider-Man number 231. It's like Spider-Man on the side of a wall. And, and there's this obscure character called the Cobra, like wrapped around uh -huh. him. And Spidey looks like he's in danger. And the great thing about that period is you have no grand database and you have no digital comics or the ability. There's no trade paperbacks, really, to, to yeah. read the archives. So anything that the characters talked about as the past was like ancient history and everything moving forward was like the exciting kind of new frontier. And, um, you know, buying back issues was this ability to try and fill in those knowledge gaps until my brother and I fell into the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. And that was just like mind blowing because <laughs> obviously the original comics were not built with any sort of grandiose, perfect plan. But when you read those encyclopedia style entries and it was written in this very factual manner, it made it seem like it was all intended to be like, that is exactly how it was supposed to go. And this was the absolute set history of the character. Yeah. And you were reading about issues that you would never be able to afford from the back issue bins. So you could just imagine how cool it was and, and then just get kind of fall into it. And that was a huge inflection point for us in terms of our obsession with the Marvel universe was this idea of the interconnectivity of it. My brother, I think, got his first part-time job, so he just started expanding his comic buying habits, and we kind of vaguely split the Marvel Universe with different stuff we would buy. I would always buy Spider-Man, and of course, at the time, there were three Spider-Man books, so Spectacular Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, and Web of Spider-Man, and then I'd buy G.I. Joe, and then I would occasionally buy, like, Fantastic Four, The Hulk, and Conan, and my brother would buy, like, Doctor Strange, X-Men, um, and then he would just buy cool stuff that jumped out at him. So if there was like some weird mini series like Cloak and Dagger or Ghost Rider or Daredevil, he would just grab whatever, you know, and cool back issues. And we would we would go on, you know, family trips and we would hit up flea markets and just buy ridiculous amounts of whatever we could find. <laughs> and then if it had a fantasy flair to it, that would always grab our attention. You know, so if there was like Warlord or something in some flea market box, you're like, well, that guy's got a sword. All right, we're going to grab some of those, you know, just whatever we could kind of get our hands on in that sort of sense. Uh, but DC, for the most part, until the 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 Tim Burton Batman movie, I, I wasn't reading any sort of DC stuff. And then it was like, of course, everyone went crazy for Batman that summer. 
like everyone was buying Batman. So I bought a few issues of Batman and I, I read Dark Knight Returns and, you know, like stuff like that year one. And then you're like, oh, OK, these characters are pretty cool, too. But it was like I would drop in for an anniversary issue or I would pick up a miniseries or some piece of art would really grab my attention. I remember buying the um, I, and it's weird because it wasn't a book that I regularly bought, but the the Bisley um, Batman Judge Dredd. So that oh, was yes. the coolest looking uh-huh. cover. And I was like, whatever that is, I want it. Like, I just, this guy looks like such a badass. And so you're just, as I was just getting a little bit older and I started to see these other European comics and this is the British invasion as well underway. You've got, you know, Sandman and eventually you got Garth Ennis and, and like, you know, like all these creators are kind of coming over and doing really crazy things as Vertigo's taking off. And I was just in that perfect age where it was like, oh, this is, now feels cooler and more forbidden and, and amazing. I'm going to start whatever buying Sandman and the Invisibles and, you know, uh, um, uh, eventually Transmetropolitan and Preacher and like all that kind of stuff as I move out of the house and go to, you know, go to, to college and stuff like that. So comics have always kind of grown with me. But yeah, I didn't really dig into the DC stuff, I guess, until Vertigo for the most part, outside of the odd kind of book that would pop up on my radar. Oh, that's completely fair. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that Batman Judge Dredd one. I recently picked that up from a comic shop over in England when I was uh, away there two weeks ago nice. for the for the princely sum of four pound for the graphic novel. It was <laughs> definitely one of my bargains. But clearly, your day trips out with the family and searching those flea markets that clearly informed mm-hmm. your sense of adventure and your sense of the unknown. What yeah. are we going to find today? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what's so great about it is you would find sometimes whole runs of books and sometimes it would just be scattershot kind of crazy things. It's funny that my brother and I just missed secret wars. We started collecting just after I think like secret wars on a regular, Uh, regular basis, but secret wars two came out and like in the rear view mirror, it's a mess. Like it's an absolute unreadable mess, but because it was happening in every book, we were like, this is the biggest thing ever. We were just so excited about the possibility that, you know, whatever Jerry Curl friggin' Beyonder was showing up in every book and causing <laughs> chaos and whatnot. It was. Uh, <laughs> it's he started off very weird. He but... started off as uh, he started off a bit blonder. He started off a wee bit of a like a Steve yes. Rogers clone, and then he uh, he, he Jerry curled. I've got the trade paperback <laughs> sitting over there. It's so funny. Certain books have such a weird. You remember where you were, kind of thing. I remember, yeah. you know, buying my brother bought that first issue of Secret Wars two, and it's got the shadow you know, here comes a Beyonder or whatever to Earth. And we were just like, holy crap, nothing will ever be the same again. And that's that perfect age when you really believe it. You believe yeah. that when whatever, you know, Thor's got to wear armor because his body is brittle or something, or Spider-Man's got the black suit. It's never going back. We're never, yeah. you know, oh, this character's gone missing or they're dead. You're like, they'll never come back. And for us, it was like, if a character was dead in the official handbook of the Marvel universe, they had those three issues of all the dead characters. We were like, that is a permanent gravestone. It is literally in print. (laughs) It is etched in pulp. It can never be changed. And so to us, the concept of a character being resurrected was just impossible. (laughs) And then the first time it happened, you're like, what? Put the characters in the dead, the, the encyclopedia of all the dead people. You can't undead them, you know. Like, just very. It 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 was very quaint and innocent in that kind of sense, I guess. But that's what made it so potent, right? Uh, that it felt like, yeah. yeah, you were hanging on every single story and adventure. You know, I think there, I think one of the things that unites 
one of the many things that unites those of us who enjoy this medium is the ability to, to some extent, hold on to that and suspend your disbelief. Uh, yeah. You know, I think there's a, there's a faith there. You know, you can kind of go, oh, God, yeah, Magneto's dead. He's never coming back. Uh, right, right. You know, I, you know he is. You absolutely know he is. But you suspend your disbelief. Sure. And you, yeah. Well, I think there's a, you can get really cynical about this stuff because particularly now when you're not just competing with other new books that are coming out, but we have at our fingertips a limitless archive of previous media in a way that we've never had access to before. You know, you're not just watching a new movie you, with a click of a button. You've got, you know, an infinite number of movies yeah. from the past that you can watch, like more than any video store, you know, back in the day. And yeah. the same thing with literature as well. And it's an amazing tool. It's an incredible thing to have access to, but it's also can be very intimidating because these books were being generated on a monthly basis to be enjoyed on a monthly basis. So if you reread years worth of comics in one fell swoop, you see a lot more of the patterning. You see a lot more of those rise and fall kind of structures that you would normally have kind of rotated out. Like my evolution from superheroes over to say Vertigo books and indie titles and whatever is a very natural kind of thing at the time. And so the next superhero generation is coming in. And yes, there's old school collectors, but they've already accepted. They know these kind of broader patterns, right? Um, and now it feels like you can see it all. And so now people want to have the perfect answer to every question. You know, yeah. they're going to ask you the questions like, why has Spider-Man seen 50 Christmases? And you're like, because it was the December issue. And it's Christmas time. That's why. And why is he wearing bell bottoms here? And then he's wearing crop tops in the 80s because it's the 80s. <laughs> you know, we don't sit there and go, therefore, Peter Parker is 70 years old, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. We just just hand wave that. And yeah. just, it's a good time. How many times has he fought Doc Ock? A bunch. Yeah. And if there's a specific plot point we need to reference, we just won't notice the fact that that particular plot line happened in the 70s and yeah so on like yeah you just gotta kind of roll with it you know uh, yeah. rather than getting overly crazy about wait 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 if punisher was in the vietnam war that means he must be you know clickety yes. clickety click and kind of craziness or whatever I, uh, yeah whenever alan and i first met i uh, and, and for some years since i've spent a long time uh, explaining the elastic marvel timeline sure <laughs> you know how it, and it, it's bizarre now yeah. like like if you think about the fact that whatever, you know, Reed Richards uh, hadn't graduated from university, uh, you know, yeah. and the Twin Towers uh, had, hadn't fallen yet. And you're just like, what? Like, <laughs> oh, God, like, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. Like, you can't you can't think about that. You can't think it's not the point. Like, that's not how this goes. Yeah, you know, exactly. yes, Captain America, he he did, you know, meet Robert Kennedy or, or JFK or he meets uh, whatever doesn't matter all the different presidents yes he has served under all of them sure great whatever Andy was in world war ii yep when did he come out of the ice you know a while ago <laughs> like, go go forward forward um, that's kind of the part what's most important about tony stark is that he was you know uh, an arms uh dealer and a guy who created weaponry and then he decided to make the armor to protect yeah, people exactly what war he fought in or whether it was against the communists or against the faceless 
yeah. whatever, it's kind of not important in the grand scheme of things. It's about what does the character say intrinsically, you know, that, that matters most. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you were talking there about the golden age of Vertigo. I, I always say that there was another golden age of independent comics, and that was Image in the early 2010s. Oh, yeah. You know, totally. a massive creative boom, tons of big titles. And obviously, Skull Kickers was part of that. You know, it ran for over 30 issues. Oh, and yeah. it certainly came out at that Which time. Which seems as like a dream now, man. No one gets a 30-issue creator-owned book yeah. nowadays. It's crazy. Well, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to ask. You know, what were the challenges in keeping a creator-owned book running for that length of time? I mean, if you were to chart it on a calendar, we were not monthly. Like, we would do an arc. Essentially, Skull Kickers was the most expensive hobby I've ever had. Because part of my goal around Skull Kickers was... Um, I was working at the Udon studio as a project manager and I thoroughly enjoyed it in that sense that we were, I was putting together art teams and we were doing artwork for video games and toys and, and comics and all sorts of different stuff. You don't see it as advertising artwork and concept art and, and just you name it. Uh, and it was fun. I got to learn about all these different industries and I got to travel and work with all these amazing clients, but you're always executing someone else's stuff. And, and I got into art and writing because of storytelling um and and i wasn't really doing that at my my day job at the time at the studio and the few projects that would roll in when they didn't have a writer i would always just like throw jump on the grenade like i'll write it whatever it is you know it could be ad copy it could be a pitch package it could be whatever just i i was desperate to try and tell those stories and then Skull Kickers came along as a way to, we did two short stories in an anthology called Pop Gun. Joe Keating had invited Chris Stevens, an artist that I had done work with, to contribute to Pop Gun Volume 2. And we ended up coming up with a 10-page story called Two Copper Pieces, which was sort of the proto Skull Kickers. And then Chris was originally supposed to draw the regular book. Um, Eric Larson had taken over as publisher at Image. And he saw that story in Pop Gun and he really liked it. And he asked if we wanted to do a miniseries of these characters. And I, this was amazing. Like we kind of had a green light for an image book and I had, you know, what would that be like? How cool could that be? And it wasn't like I did it with this idea of, and then my career will explode ever onwards. It was just, oh God, I get to make something and I get to put my name on it and, and really ride that out. And then Chris wasn't able to draw the book. And I met Edwin Huang, I think about six or seven months later, a little bit more long and involved, but we ended up launching the book in 2010. And the timing was really good because Walking Dead was in development as a TV show and was imminent to launch. And there was this feeling that creator-owned comics were the voice, were the front end of, of where comics were going at that moment. And you had books like uh, Morning Glories and Chew, and there was just this sense of oh, there's really exciting stuff going on at Image. And I didn't do it with any sort of intent. I just happened to be in the mix at the same time doing a very different kind of a book. There weren't a lot of fantasy books at the time. There were almost no comedy books at the time. And again, I wasn't counter-programming with any sort of intent. It was just like, this is the stuff I like. This is what playing D&D feels like, you know, goofy ridiculousness and kind of making fun of the genre and what may have you. And um and it hit the spot for people in that sense that it did better than expected. We did three printings of the first issue. I think we did two printings of issue two and three. And because of that, it was now Eric Stevenson who was running Image. And he said, well, do you guys want to make it ongoing? 
can you make it ongoing? And I was like, oh yeah, I'll find a way. And then we just kept going with it. But almost immediately, I mean, we, we launched at what we thought were pretty good numbers, but then we settled into a sort of vaguely, almost not really profitable once you paid the art team, once everyone was taken care of. And so I would do an arc of Skull Kickers with Edwin and with Misty and Marshall, my letterer. And then I would take on other freelance projects to finance the next arc of Skull Kickers. And it became this weird kind of dead cat bounce of our sales kind of bottomed out to a level that most publishers would have just canceled us. But Image was essentially like, well, we're covering our printing bill. Can you guys even keep doing this? And we were like, of course we can. And it didn't matter if we went into the red, we would just keep doing it. And then you hit this weird point. I don't think this always happens, by the way. I don't want to give anyone any bad advice, but <laughs> it just kept coming out. And so people were like, well, it wouldn't have gotten to issue 14 if it wasn't doing well. So why give her check this thing out? And so our sales kind of climbed back up because it was just still there. We were just still coming out. And there was enough, not like incredible word of mouth, but just, oh, it's a fun book. It's a good book. It's a consistent book. The art's great and, and you know, Zub's funny and all this kind of stuff. And so our trade paperbacks did quite well. And then every time a trade would come out, that would kind of refill the coffers up so we were no longer in the red. And then we would immediately bottom out on the next six issues. And then we would climb back out of the pit. And so we just rode all the way to not profitability to, to the end of the thing. The craziest point for me was on arc four because we were still declining overall. And so I, I pitched this idea to Image. I might've pitched it right to Eric Stevenson. At the time, boy, did I think this was such a big deal. Marvel and DC were doing all these new number ones. You know, the DC New 52 had happened and all yeah. this stuff. And um, it was always new number ones everywhere. And I thought this was really cynical and bad and stupid. And so we did a thing where we did five number ones in five months. And we, gave, we put a, a different title in Skull Kickers. So we did... The Uncanny Skull Kickers, because at the time there was Uncanny X-Men, Uncanny yes. Avengers. Uh, there was one other Uncanny book, Uncanny X-Force. And so we were like, we're the Uncanny Skull Kickers. And we did Mighty Skull Kickers and Savage Skull Kickers. And, and every month we put out a new press release like it was a relaunch with the exact same text, but crossed <laughs> out the previous stuff. And it was the most cynical kind of cash grabby sort of thing. And lo and behold, Uncanny Skull Kickers sold double our previous issue. And so it was the exact reason why Marvel and DC hit the reset button. It's the, we proved the model. Our sales went way back up into profitability and that filled up the coffers to carry us through to the end of the series, to the sixth arc. And so as cynical a cash grab as it was, and I thought we were just gonna be sarcastically poking fun and, and uh, people loved it, retailers loved it and they, they would rack us right beside the other uncanny issues or whatever else is a big joke. Um, it really did prove why the publishers do it is because it does bring eyeballs and people do think it's a jumping on point and all that kind of stuff. And we were just cynically doing the next issue of the series. We had variant covers with the original numbering on it, but our main cover was the new number one every <laughs> single month. And uh, it was dumb. And now it seems so timid when you compare that most of the books are rebooting every year, if not multiple times per year. And so it seems like Prophetic. just a, a nothing. Like it, it was a nothing. At the time, I thought I was being so devious. And then it's like, oh, whatever. We'll outpace that. Just you wait, you know? And I was like, all right, we're not even going to change the creative team. We just, you know, throw a new number one on that sucker and 
pull the lever every single time. And to the point where, you know, I'm doing Conan right now and I had people, multiple, not even like one or two people, like multiple people message me and be like, I really hope that you guys don't do a number, a new number one after issue 12. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? No, we're doing issue 13. And they're like, wow, do they do issue 13s anymore? <laughs> oh, God. This is the saddest thing ever. Like, oh, geez, guys. It's yeah. like, like buildings that don't have a floor 13. They they avoid yeah, it and just yeah. renumber it to one again. I mean, once you've done a year, what else is there to say? Let's get out of here. You know, we got to punch the button or whatever. But um, yeah, it's uh, but back to your original question about doing Skull Kickers that time. It was super exciting. It was super fun. Um, it, even when the book wasn't making money, there was this idea of I'm a real comic creator. I'm making a thing and I've got a voice and we're putting out this book. And editors know how hard it is to put out a book with a publisher behind it. And I don't mean to say the image isn't a publisher, but you are your own production staff. You are your own, like, yes, they have a graphic designer and they will lay the book out, but there is no editor flogging you. There is no, you know, corporate system upholding this thing. If you ship that book 10 weeks late, Image will, you know, wag their finger at you and when's it coming in? Like, that's pretty much the extent of it, right? And if they'll send you the, the here's all the expenses for the book and here's what's left over. And if that's enough to buy a car, great. And if that's enough to buy lunch, great. Like that's, do you want to keep publishing this thing? This is, these are the numbers, you know? And you get to chart your own course, which for some types of creators is the ultimate expression of, creativity where they get to do exactly what they want the way they want and other people it's a nightmare because they can't police themselves or they don't want to deal with those other aspects of production and deadline and so um for me as someone who was project managing at udon it was just like carrying that role forward except i also have to be the accountant and kind of look and go can we keep doing this thing but it was great i learned a ton and it, it built respect with other publishers because they know how hard it is to put out a book of quality and do it consistently and you're not just doing it once twice or even a mini series like you you know we did 30 issues and those issues are as good as just about you know any other book on the stands at the time it doesn't feel like well give them a break because it's an indie title or a creator own book and <clears throat> uh, you know it 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 held up um and that on itself becomes a calling card, you know, to other publishers and to, to other people. I didn't do it to be an advertisement. I didn't do it to get other gigs, but the side benefit was that people were like, Oh, this guy's, these guys are good. Yeah. They can do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something for the CV. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then, you know, and, and the great thing about a creator owned book is you can, because you're charting your own course and you're picking the genre and the approach or whatever, it's almost like if this was Hollywood and you see, an actor who's been typecast really hard and then they'll go do an off-Broadway to prove to you they're a dramatic actor or something like that. They're like, oh, everyone thinks they're just a B-movie or a scream queen or, you know, uh, uh, a comedy kid. And then all of a sudden they're going to do a Shakespeare run and then everyone goes, ooh, Shakespeare, they're a real actor, <laughs> you know. Um, when I did something like Wayward, which was this ensemble cast of teenagers and it's full of angst and darkness and interweaving plots and mythology. People are like, Oh, Jim's not just like the goofy action comedy guy. He can do other stuff as well. Or glitter bomb is like a really dark and cynical kind of brutal book. And I, you know, that same guy that wrote that is the guy that did the, the Disney figment, you know, comics, like, like I can write all kinds of different stuff, whatever. I'm full of multitudes. You know, I can, I can, 
kind of dig in and lean into different genres and different voices. And and for me, it's all kind of I kind of tying it back to what we talked about before. It's all role playing. You're you're essentially who is this for and what is the audience and what is the voice of this thing? So whether I'm writing an all ages, you know, comic, an adventurous steampunk story about a Disney uh, park character, or we're going to do deep, dark, nasty kind of cynical look at Hollywood and stardom, you kind of marinate yourself in the material. What do I think is interesting about this and how can I kind of get into the mode and then and then fire forth in that direction and hopefully prove to people that you're not just a a one note thing. That being said, I don't mind being typecast as the sword and sorcery guy. You know, the way I say to people is like, well, if it's got a sword in it or a dragon or something fantasy related, I'm probably on your short list. Hey, at least I'm on your list. They don't have an angle. They don't have a, a zone. You know what I mean? Where you're like, well, what do you think of them for? I think of them as if I think of them at all, you yeah. know, it's like, no, you, you know, almost obnoxiously I'm in your fantasy space, you know? I, I remember they, it was CBR or some website did a list of 25 fantasy comics. I think nine of them were mine. <laughs> and the, even the person putting the list together was like, surprising no one, here's another Jim's up fantasy comic. <laughs> like they were getting sick of listing the creative team or whatever. And I was like, good. Like my branding is strong. You know, like it's so <laughs> solid. Like right now, because I've done so much Conan, I get, I got messages from people angrily telling them, telling me how much they hated a Conan story that wasn't one of mine uh, because they just assumed I wrote it. And I was just like, <laughs> awesome. Like I got, <laughs> I, I, you know, it sucks that they didn't like this Conan story. And I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus in terms of telling them who wrote that one. But it's like, great. You assume it's mine because I'm so in, you know, ingratiated with the Conan, character yeah, and with yeah, the band. Yeah. Like, cool. I don't mind telling you that's not one of mine, but I'll be your first stop shop in the high boring age. I'm okay with that. You know, that's cool. Thanks for joining us for the first part of our interview with a fantastic Jim Zub. We'll be back very, very shortly with part two. So, I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes most days, and on Twitter, where Alan is Coffee and Heroes 1, and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book store, coffee shop, and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can also find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store soon. (laughs) 